welcome back to another episode of Well Said, where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, and students and activists on topics of higher education and free speech and other related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as any podcast platform such as Apple, Spotify, Anchor. Download the episode and listen anytime. If you like what you heard today, give our podcast a five-star rating and go to our website, speechfirst.org, and press donate. So I'm very excited to welcome back to the show Lathan Watts, the Vice President of Public Affairs at the Alliance for Defending Freedom, to discuss a huge win in the U.S. Supreme Court last week in the case 303 Creative versus Alanis. Many of you know that the last couple of weeks have been big in the Supreme Court for higher education and free speech, with Biden's unconstitutional tactic to buy votes by forgiving student loan debt without the approval of Congress, or when the court finally calling out affirmative action practices in the universities for being downright discriminatory. So there was another great ruling in favor of plaintiff Lori Smith, who is an artist who runs her own design studio called 303 Creative, specializing in graphic and website design. So this was a huge win, everyone, for uh, for free speech and a big loss for government-compelled speech. Here in America, an individual's right to free speech is just as protected by the First Amendment as their right not to espouse ideas or be forced to speak things they do not believe in. So Layden is going to walk us through this case as well as dive a bit deeper with me is some of the bigger questions this lawsuit either answers or has brought to the forefront of policy discussions regarding protected speech. So thanks again, Lathan, for joining us. I will first start us off by having you just kind of give us some background on the 303 Creative versus Alanis uh, lawsuit and kind of what, what brought it about, uh, how, how it progressed through the courts, and then ultimately kind of just walk us through the decisions that came down. Certainly. Uh, thanks again you know, for having me back. Um, Certainly, you know, glad to be here uh, celebrating a big win. Um, really, to get the the real background of 303 Creative, you actually have to kind of go back to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, also in Colorado, uh, because Lori Smith is also in Colorado and saw what happened to Jack Phillips um, in in his case, and starting her own studio, uh, you know, website and graphic design, and knowing that she would like to at some point. Um, offer her design services for custom websites for people's weddings that you know lots of people do these days. Um, but having seen what happened to Jack Phillips, um, trying to run his business according to his beliefs on specifically on the issue of marriage, and having similar views on the issue of marriage, she she understood that the the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that if she went into that if she expanded her business into that that she would likely be forced or attempted to be forced to create messages that she just could not in good conscience create. And so she filed what's known as a pre-enforcement challenge um, to uh, this law and the the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the way it was being applied. Um, And pre-enforcement challenges really go back many, many years, and they're sort of a hallmark of civil rights litigation. And it's kind of based on the idea that if there's an unjust law out there, you shouldn't have to violate it and and suffer the penalties, you know, civil or criminal, in order to get a case into court to challenge the validity of that law. So you should right. be able to say, look, this law is on the books. It would apply to me if I did this and it's wrong and I'm here to challenge this law. And that's what she did um, at the at the district federal district court level. Um, the state of Colorado and their civil rights commission, they agreed to the stipulated facts of the case, um, that Lori serves all types of customers, including, um, LGBT clients, 
um, that she had received requests for wedding websites, uh, both um, traditional marriage and and same-sex marriages, and that she based her decision on the message that was being created, not who was requesting it. So those were those facts were agreed to at the federal district court at the trial court level. They were not disputed um, when we appealed to the Tenth Circuit, and they were not disputed when when we appealed the Tenth Circuit's decision to the United States Supreme Court. And even Justice Gorsuch during oral oral argument um, summarized it by saying, "So you know, she makes her decision based on the what, not the who." And you know, I was listening into oral argument, and I heard that, and I was like. Please let Gorsuch write the the majority opinion, uh, which it turns out he did. Yeah. Right. Um, so having seen what happened in Jack Phillips and not wanting mm. you know to be subject to the same sort of government uh, coercion, she filed the pre enforcement challenge, and thankfully, um, once it got all the way to the Supreme Court, it was um, you know a very sort of I wouldn't say simple, but a very straightforward free speech question. Can the government coerce anyone to speak a message with which that person vehemently disagrees? Mm-hmm. And um, thankfully, the Supreme Court, in a six-three decision, said no, it cannot. Um, you know, this is basically the flip side of the coin of censorship. You know, government telling you you can't say that. This is government telling you you must say this. Right. And so it, it is. Is a very very big win uh, for free speech uh, for and it's a win for everyone because yeah. Lori Smith if if she wins then if you're a website you know designer in, in Colorado and you're a big proponent of same sex uh, marriage and somebody comes into your shop and says I want a custom designed website um, explaining why marriage is only between a man and a woman well. If Lori wins, then you win. You don't have to create that message. Um, You know, your decision to to engage in speech based on what that speech is, not who's requesting it, regardless if they're a a protected class um, in other contexts, your decision on what speech you're going to create, what message you are going um, to put out there is your decision. Mm -hmm. And the government cannot force you to speak a message that you disagree with. And so it's a huge win for everyone. Um, it, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people uh, are really kind of misconstruing um, the, the facts of the case and what the, and what the decision really means for, for everyone. Um, but and we'll, you know, we'll get into that too, because yeah. there are a lot of weird narratives floating around. Yeah. How, it's yeah. like, man, it kind of, it makes me think too, with some of the stories that have come out, people really have no faith in, uh, in the judicial system anymore. They genuinely believe that everyone's just lying to them all the time, um, which is a concern of its own. <laughs> but, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a win for everyone. And, and we yeah. said this all along, if Lori wins, everyone wins. If Lori loses, then, you know, the government in your area may, may get to decide to tell you what message you have to speak on an issue that's important to you. Yeah. And okay, before we dive deeper into kind of some of the major consequences of the case for free speech and what would have happened if she had lost, um, let's dig a little bit into a couple of things. You mentioned the pre-enforcement. Um, she she kind of, she saw that there was this law. It was going to force her 
to espouse a certain message that she didn't believe in. Um, and the, I think the Colorado law, can you, can you explain that a little bit? Because I'm pretty sure it basically almost would have, she would have had to write verbatim almost of what, what they were, uh, what they would have wanted, or they would have had to approve her messaging in a way or, or edit it. Right. It's, it's basically a public accommodation law, which is intended to uh, make sure that people don't deny services to based on, you know, like a protected class, like race, religion, sex. And the, the great thing about the 303 decision is that it shows that public accommodations laws and the First Amendment do co can and should coexist. Right. Because right. He's not basing any sort of decision based on who the person is. It's not based on their identity. It's based on the message they're asking her to create. Right. And so it, it in no way, you know, uh, enables any sort of um, discrimination that is already prohibited um, and that's protected by, you know, accommodation laws. And so that's really, you know, that and, and it's sort of enforcement arm, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is what she was challenging. Um, by saying, you know, this shouldn't apply to me because I do accommodate everyone. I just make right. my decision about what speech I'm going to create. So what was unique about the Colorado law that basically made it any different than any other kind of federal anti-discrimination law? I think it was in text. It's probably not that unique. It's how it was being applied. I see. It okay. was It was stretching it to this um, degree that said, you know, if the, if you don't want to create this message, you are somehow discriminating against the person who requested it. Right. That's, right. and that's just simply not true. You know, right. as I said, they stipulated to the facts that she serves, she has, um, LGBT clients, um, and she does work for them on, on other, other causes, other, you know, other issues. There's just certain messages that she's not going, that she's not comfortable creating. Right. And the biggest difference here that was really teased out in the litigation process was the differences between actually discriminating via providing services versus discriminating on, you know, like was basically saying, I'm not going to espouse an idea that I don't believe in just to make you happy or just to make you feel better about yourself. And that's what we see a lot of times, especially on college campuses, where a lot of this tamping down on speech is to make everyone feel happy. Or, you know, a lot of universities try to create policies that uh, enforce essentially censorship laws on campus in order to so that students to force students to be uh, to avoid hurting each other's feelings. But what it really does ultimately is it just prevents people from speaking. Um, so that's that's the big issue here. And in the United States, like we've mentioned before, this is something that you know we have very far-reaching and very liberal, small-l liberal um, free speech policies in, in this country, un unlike many other countries around the world. So it is something that I think, especially if we're constantly comparing ourselves to other countries, the younger generations have a hard time grasping a lot of these concepts because they never really existed in a world where speech was very limited or where people were trying to come in and take away your rights. Uh, so because they never had to face that directly to them, this seems like, oh, it opens us up to like hate speech and, and bias speech uh, and things that we don't want bullying. It's like, well, actually, like you said, this is a win for everyone because had this had, let's talk about what would have happened if the court did not rule in Lori's favor on this case. Yeah. So, you know, um, the government in Colorado could then force her to create this message. Um, so if you're, 
you know, if you're say on the other side of an issue, like to, to put it uh, in these in these terms, um, the so let's say it's a, a very conservative government, a very conservative state, Texas or Arkansas mm-hmm. or one of those places, and you are a, a videographer, um, you know, documentarian um, who happens to be very pro-choice. And I walk into your shop and say, my pro-life group is going to participate in the March for Life for the first time this year. And I've seen your work. You do great work. And I would like to hire you to document and create uh, you know, a short film about our experience at the March for Life. Well, if Lori lost, then, you know, under a, maybe a more conservative government could force you, that pro-choice videographer, mm-hmm. to film my group's participation in the March for Life when it contradicts everything you believe on that issue. Um, and so there's a uh, there's a quote, I was looking it up to make sure I didn't butcher it, um, <laughs> Thomas Paine, um, he that would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy from oppression, for if he violates this duty, he establishes a precedent that will reach to himself. Right. And this seems to be the, the the big point that everybody seems to be missing about this. Mm-hmm. They get so caught up in what Lori's beliefs on the issue of marriage are and their disagreement with them that they miss the the big picture. That what she believes and what message she does or doesn't want to create is almost irrelevant to the right. law in the case. The point is, can government force you to do it? Right. Uh, the if there's a winner and a loser here, the winner are the everybody in America, free speech, right. and the loser is government, right. coercive government. Um, so, you know, I, I saw some of the, you know, the immediate reaction and and there was um, a line from a Tarantino movie came to, to mind, which I'm not even sure I should admit that I've seen, but the main character turns to a guy next to him and says, are you such a loser that you don't know when you've won? And, <laughs> you know, That's pretty good. And, yeah. So I bet you didn't expect Thomas Paine and Tarantino in the same interview. <laughs> same but, that was, but that was like one of the first things that I thought of. I was like, right. you won. Everybody wins here. Um, right. you're, you're, you're so myopically focused on what her beliefs are and how you don't like them that right. you're missing the big picture here. Well, this is a lot of the times, again, like what we see on campuses, what we see with other forms of censorship. Um, when you talk about oh, let's define what some of these terms are. What is hate? What is bias? What is a microaggression? These are all incredibly subjective terms. Right. And so we're right. losing sight of the objective reality, which is that, you know, what is what is important to us ultimately is that we can express our ideas, whether or not you disagree with them. The whole reason the First Amendment exists ultimately at the end of the day when we're talking about, sorry, not First Amendment, but like the free speech clause of the First Amendment yeah. exists ultimately has has more to do with the fact that that we are protecting un, unlikable speech or, or you know speech that's going against the grain, speech that's going against the government. That's what it's really right. ultimately trying to protect because the founders understood the the dangers and perils of allowing a government to be able to censor and coerce its citizens. Um, they'd seen it before they'd experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were they were keenly aware of the potential of the tyranny of the majority. Right. Which is why they wanted you know all viewpoints to be able to be expressed. It's necessary if you're going to have a pluralistic society, and if you're going to have you know a little r a republic, mm-hmm. know, a democracy where free speech not only benefits the speaker but it benefits the listener. Like if you're if you're going to make an informed decision on an issue, you need to be able to hear from all sides of it, and. You know, some people express these things, you know, inartfully, you know, and less tactfully than others. 
and it might make you uncomfortable. It might even hurt your feelings, but there is no right to go through life without ever experiencing some sort of discomfort. There's no right to never have your feelings hurt. There is a right to speak your mind and for the listener to hear what's on your mind and make a decision for themselves. And so it's essential to our, our way of life and our form of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so let's talk about the Masterpiece Cake Shop and the connections here, um, because we've, we've talked about the law. Now, would the the pre-enforcement, would Lori have been, how successful would this have been? What would have the potential have been had the Masterpiece Cake Shop case not happened, had that not occurred, had the, the decision not come down from the Supreme Court? Um, what would, would we have had to wait for the state um, to enforce this law against someone and to violate their rights in order? Uh, yeah, even without masterpiece, I mean, pre-enforcement challenges are are still very common in civil rights litigation. So uh, even without litigate, even without masterpiece, I think she still would have been able to file a pre-enforcement challenge. But I do think that um, the attention that the masterpiece cake shop case brought to this issue, mm-hmm. um, you know, Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, brought up in oral argument um, to uh, believe it was the Solicitor General from Colorado that he brought up the master, he brought up Jack Phillips and mm-hmm. said, he's like, you know, Jack Phillips, you know, was basically vindicated by this court and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he said, you know, didn't you guys basically put him through some sort of re-education camp? <laughs> and <laughs> and That's uh, so good. Yeah. yeah, you're having a tough day at the office when you get that question from, <laughs> uh, from justice. And, yeah. you know, the, the attorney said, well, I wouldn't characterize it that way. He said, well, how would you characterize it? And well, you know, he had to be sort of educated, you know, trained <laughs> where his abilities were under, you know, the Civil Rights Commission and, and Gorsuch basically said, well, one could be forgiven for mistaking that for a re-education camp. And that was another one of those moments listening in. I was like, boy, I hope Gorsuch writes this opinion. And yeah. He did. So even without that case, I mean, she still could have brought a pre-enforcement challenge because the mm-hmm. law was in place. But I do think that everybody, you know, that, that case did bring such attention to this, um, to this issue that it did sort of, um, kind of lay the foundation for this case. Right. And it gave her so much more to work with when it came to proving that she had standing, right. That she was able to, that she saw what the repercussions were going to be if she had that law enforced against her and she had to fight it then. Like, I mean, Jack, His he how much how many millions of dollars how much money had been spent how much money had he lost by having right. to close his business um, by right. you know being boycotted all of the things that followed and he's and he's still in litigation right he's still yes uh, going on eleven years now wow uh, it turns your life upside down yeah absolutely and the the folks that that are interested in coercing people into mm-hmm. speaking this message they understand that the process is the punishment right it's a big part of the punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that when his case was decided, you know, in our previous court, Justice Kennedy, you know, they, it was a very sort of thread the needle kind of decision. And they really didn't get into that straight up free speech question. Can the government coerce him to speak this message? Right. Which is really why this case had to be brought forward. Right. Uh, Because basically what Masterpiece what what Justice Kennedy said was that Civil Rights Commission was clearly biased against his beliefs. And and therefore, you know, uh, he wasn't he, he didn't get a fair shake from the Civil Rights Commission and, and Jack Phillips, you know, uh, 
Jack Phillips wins, basically. Right. Um, and that turns it into more of a religious liberty case, right? Right. right. And so um, let's let's tease that out a little bit with Lori's case, because yeah. I think initially when, when the 303 uh, creative case hit the news waves, it was very much characterized as a religious liberty case because of her beliefs, because she's a Christian and she had certain beliefs about um, waste of life um, that the government was essentially trying to coerce her to renege in order to satisfy their law. So a lot of people thought this is like a religious liberty case, but really what I think you guys did a great job with messaging and us, you know, just trying to inform the public, this is a, this is a free speech case ultimately. And even though, you know, regardless of her beliefs, this was a primarily a free speech was answering the free speech question that the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, right. did not get to. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it's there, but there, this is why the public is a little confused by it. So it did one thing in that it added fuel to the fire that is the far left trying to characterize this as an anti-LGBTQ um, kind of bigoted decision, which we can get into a little bit later. Um, but what what it also did was it, and I think this is partly because this is how the American public thinks of the First Amendment. It tied together this concepts of religious liberty and free speech in a way that a lot of people hadn't talked about before. So why don't we tease that out a little bit more, if you can kind of delve into yeah. it um, and just talk about ultimately like what the purpose is of, of both of these clauses of the First Amendment. Right. Right. So um, Lori's case is a pure free speech case, you know, because it is about government coercion mm -hmm. of speech. Now, her her reasons for not wanting to speak that message are rooted in her faith. But from for the for the legal analysis, it is strictly on on free speech grounds. Um, and, it, you know, that that's it's it's sort of um, it, it can get a little convoluted, you know, but the you know, for you know legal nerds, it's like <laughs> there's a there's it's almost like two separate bodies of constitutional law if you're talking about. A religious liberty. There's a religious liberty analysis in this line of cases. If you're talking about a pure free speech claim, it's a free speech analysis. It's these line of cases, but um, the overlapping protection mm -hmm. um, is right there in the First Amendment. You know, the the free exercise clause and then the free speech clause, um, because you know the founders were very very keen to protect the proper role of religion in a free civil society. And the free exercise of religion, being able to live according to your faith in all mm -hmm. aspects of your life, um, including talking about it or including, you know, the decision not to to say something mm -hmm. that conflicts with those religious beliefs, um, because it's very hard to live according to your faith if you can never say anything about it. Right. You know? um, yeah. And so that. That overlapping protection, you know, if there is if there is a case where the speech in and of itself is religious, then it has you know double protection. It's got free speech protection. It's got free exercise protection. This was a you know what most constitutional scholars would say is a more pure speech analysis. Um, even though her reasons personally for not wanting to speak that are rooted in faith, mm -hmm. uh, but. They wanted that overlapping protection, like I said, because they wanted to preserve the proper role of religion in, in a free society. They did not want there to be an official state-sponsored church. That's the Establishment Clause. But they wanted religion to flourish um, because they knew that for men to be free, they have to be good. Right. Um, right. All of human history has shown, you know, like our, our Constitution is founded on this idea of ordered liberty. If you just have order, 
and no liberty, you have tyranny. If you only have liberty and there's no order to it, you have chaos, which kind of eventually leads back to tyranny. And the French Revolution sort of proved them right on that. Yeah, um, it did. Yeah. So the that that's the role they were trying to preserve for religion, uh, not to coerce anybody, not to you know be compel anyone to support a state church or you, know, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to do any of these things, but that um, that for free for free men to live amongst other free men, they they require a baseline of morality, not to use that freedom to abuse someone else or to infringe on someone else. And that sort of common baseline of morality is where is what they expected the role of religion to be, that this is where we learn how to how to treat other people, you know, how to be good people, to be good enough to be trusted with freedom. Right. Um, because every time, you know, throughout human, human history, you know, if people are just free to do whatever they want. The strong will oppress the weak. Yes. You know, someone will take something from somebody else. Um, those who get into power will do terrible things to stay in power. Um, and do terrible things with that power. That's because power fun. becomes the ultimate end at that point. In that, in that, in that exactly. Capacity. And what ends yeah. up happening is you use all means necessary and all means justify the ends in order to to keep that exactly power, right. Yeah, you know, they knew that is the fallen nature of man. Mm-hmm. Right, they were very very aware of that. Adam said, "Our constitution is written for a moral religious people, wholly inadequate to the government of any other." Right. right? Um, yeah. So that's why there's that overlapping protection. And that's why even though this case is a pure free speech case, people did probably initially kind of mistake it for a religious liberty case because her beliefs on marriage are rooted in her faith. And you kind of wonder sometimes if it was an intentional mistake on the parts of those who are trying to um, create a different narrative around what this case represented, because they themselves are threatened by religious liberty in, in the United States. They're, they're threatened by the more kind of moral concept of religion in that it's important and valuable and absolutely necessary to society. Um, there's many in this country now who are very, probably don't represent a majority, definitely don't represent a majority, but um, are a small minority that like to speak about religion as if it's detrimental to American society and culture. Um, and then therefore would be totally okay jettisoning the religious liberty um, clause of the, of the First Amendment. Um, and in that case, all the other clauses of the First Amendment, because they are all connected to the concept of like freedom of conscience and being able to espouse your your own beliefs. Um, so before we go down that rabbit hole of like essentially like kind of why what the reason and ultimate motives are to um, for the type of coercion that we're seeing these days, I do want to talk about these false narratives that we've touched on a couple times. Um, there's false claims by the New Republic. Oh my gosh, so many articles. I didn't notice it until I had seen one. I didn't know how many they had actually written about this. They're they're very obsessed with this like false like saying that this is a fake case, um, and this is all a setup. And and talking about how basically the Supreme Court heard a fake case and they made a decision based on it that was supposed to specifically designed to harm LGBTQ plus communities. And so I'm kind of curious, what what's your whole take on this? Um, how do how do we combat false narratives like this um, about right. respecting free speech, of course, right? Because this is right. completely a misunderstanding of the lawsuit. Well, first of all, I, you know, I find it hard to believe that anyone would think that the New Republic figured out something that the lawyers for the state of Colorado could not figure out. And, <laughs> and, you know, honestly, whether or not one, one person that requested um, a web, a, a website, um, a wedding website was doing so under 
false pretenses is irrelevant to the law mm-hmm. in the case. She has a right to file a pre-enforcement challenge against this law that would force her to create this website, whether or not the person who sent an email saying mm-hmm. they wanted it was really this or really that. It, it's it's honestly, it's irrelevant to the law of the case. You know, and as I said before, Colorado stipulated to the facts that she had received requests before and after filing the suit for these types of for for wedding websites. So, and you know, from a I guess you know, kind of a, a personal or ADF perspective, we get between anywhere between two and four thousand requests for help every year. Wow! And we don't have to make up cases. <laughs> We can't do all the cases that people want us to do because we have we don't have enough lawyers, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough time, resources, all of those things. Which is right. why we're so careful about selecting the cases that we're going to do because you know we're a C three, we don't charge the clients, we're supported by donors, so we're trying to get the most out of each case that we do to, re- to provide a good return on that investment our donors make. Um, so that's why we are so intentional about what cases we're going to do and, and vetting you know the, the facts and the clients and all of that. Um, but to say that we somehow, you know, would fake, we don't have to fake anything. We, you know, we've got, I think, probably somewhere in that neighborhood of north of 200 cases in active litigation right now. But we get anywhere from two to 4,000 requests for, for help. So we're, we're barely scratching the surface of, right. of these cases. We don't have to make anything up. Are you kidding me? Um, and if this was even remotely true, you think Justice Sotomayor might have mentioned it in her dissent? Right. It's, it's, a bit insult- it's very insulting to the intelligence of the Supreme Court justices that they actually yeah. would even hear a case as if there's no research done in advance that right. they would hear a case. They would be so fooled by something like this. Um, yeah. But I think it, it, it speaks to a, a deeper issue, which is kind of what leads us into ultimately the type of coercion that we're trying to that we're seeing all over the country right now not just on campuses but also in cities i think it was i want to say michigan uh state they just recently passed a law through their senate i think the house still has to approve it um that essentially makes it a felony um to not use someone's preferred pronouns and i think that you have to pay ten thousand dollar fine and that's not that's about what we have been seeing in Canada, where people have actually been jailed for not using correct pronouns. So these types of forms of compelled speech and coercion to espouse ideas you don't believe in, forcing the public to to take your side. This, there's a very totalitarian tactic. I mean, this is something this is not new to society. These are totalitarian uh, practices, things we've seen all throughout history. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts on what you know what the ultimate goal some of these false narratives are not just on the 303 creative case but around just why you know about free speech being calling it evil saying that it opens doors up to hate speech and that that's even worse than the free speech concept itself and what the significance is of us losing that ultimate culture uh for free speech in this country because of of these totalitarian tactics yeah, you know, I can't get inside the heads of, of folks that work for New Republic, nor would I want to, uh, frankly. Mm-hmm. But uh, so as to their motivation, but you know, I I think it's sort of um, almost again kind of our own fallen human nature when you think you've lost to try to you know um, explain it away or uh, minimize its impact or you know come up with excuses or whatever. Um, but again, they didn't lose. <laughs> coercive government lost 
Right. No, no. Well, they lost if they want a coercive government, if they want to be a governing party that is coercive. That's the only thing. That's the only conclusion I can come to is that they do feel like they've lost. Yeah. And maybe that's it, you know, um, but it's it's a very sort of um, it's it's very short sighted view of liberty. Because you are basically operating on the assumption that you that your that everything you believe will always be the the cultural orthodoxy, um, and you know if you look at say like Jack Phillips, you know in his original case, the Civil Rights Commission compared his views to those of like white supremacists and nothing neo Nazis and other things, um, and then go back say fifty years when the ACLU won the Skokie case you know, defending the rights of neo-Nazis to, to hold a rally. You know, you, it doesn't take long for something that was once maybe kind of culturally mainstream right. to now be really out of fashion culturally. Mm-hmm. And you never know what belief of yours or what some, some opinion of yours that's very, very important to you that may be just fine with everybody else right now that, that you're teaching your children that maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, your children are going to have to deal with being the ones on the, on the flip side of this. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's why you know, we just keep coming back to this. You know, if you want to protect your own speech, you've got to protect it, even for the people that you disagree with. If whether or not you share the same beliefs of Lori Smith or you find them completely reprehensible, you should be glad that she won. And and you should be hoping that ADF continues winning these cases, um, so that in the future, some view of yours that you know is non-controversial today, but a few years from now may be the most controversial thing. Your freedom to continue to speak it and live according to it is still protected. Right. Absolutely. Um, one thing. This is going to shift gears a little bit, but I am kind of curious to hear if you have any thoughts on it. Um, so Lori's company, Three Hundred Three Creative, is a digital. Um, it mostly operates in the digital world online. Um, mm-hmm. So she creates websites. Um, it's part of what one of the main um, things that she does. So is there any precedent in this case? And I know we're all kind of thinking it because it's like, oh, online communication, online speech. Um, there's a lot of talk and there's very little precedent around online speech right now. Um, so just like, you know, you have companies who are trying to regulate it and censor it, being influenced by the government or being coerced by the government. We have yet to really tease that one out completely. Um, but what is, you know, does this set any kind of precedent for online speech or is this just completely separate speech question? Or do you think this might be, this could be a decision that that is recalled or like called back to in, a, in an opinion in a few in a future um, online speech case. Yeah, I, I could see it as that, as it's sort of taking a step, um, another step forward in considering the whole concept of of you know, speech and speech online and what is speech, because that that was again one of the things, one of the facts that was stipulated to mm-hmm. all the way back at the district court level that her activity was pure speech. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, where it's different from, say, some of the other things that you've mentioned is she's creating it um, from scratch. It's completely custom. She's creating it and putting it gotcha. on, which is different than using an online platform that already exists, like social media or other things, to express yourself there. And that brings in a whole you know other bucket of issues. But I do think that the principle that the government cannot 
coerce you to speak a message or, mm-hmm. or on the contrary, you know, censor you from speaking a message, um, that that principle is even more firmly established may play into how some of these other cases play out when, as you mentioned, it's kind of come to light the government's role in some of these things with some of these platforms. Yeah. So um, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do think that this probably um from uh, firm, firmly establishing that principle in and the fact that it was it was a website but it was created from scratch and put out there is maybe something that will be considered in the future on these other issues dealing with um social media or other online platforms yeah yeah now that makes sense i'm really curious to see how um alan if if, if it does play a role at all in that in that decision um Okay, before we wrap up, I just want to get your thoughts on what are some of the challenges that you and ADF foresee kind of in the light of this recent win or other free speech cases or other areas kind of around the same issues um, regarding the First Amendment? What do you what are some of the some of the issues that you see kind of right. coming to the forefront of our conversations with all this? Well, we're still very busy, you know, on uh, college campuses, you know, just like you protecting free, free speech on on college campuses. Um but one area that people might not have um, heard much about is that we have a case in the state of Washington, a client named Brian Tingley, who's a, a therapist, a Christian counselor. So he he provides counseling services from a religious perspective. So the people that come to him are likely looking for counseling from a, right. a, a faith perspective. The state of Washington passed a law that is basically a counseling censorship law that says if a person is dealing with gender dysphoria, mm. the only permissible therapy uh, response is to affirm their, their their gender. So if it's a man who thinks he's a woman, you have to affirm that, yes, he is a woman and help him become right. you know, more comfortable with this female identity. That that is the only therapy, that is the only counseling that you can provide. So if, wow. if a client comes to Brian... Tingly and says, you know, I'm struggling with this and I want, you know, from my faith perspective, help um, becoming comfortable with the, the biology that God gave me. If he gives that counseling that they're that they're seeking, he is breaking this law and is subject to civil and criminal right. penalties. And this I mean, is a clear violation of his rights. I mean, this is I, uh, again, but, it's like it's very similar. You have the state once again trying to dictate um what someone is doing, not only in their preferred message. Right. right their yeah. preferred message, exactly. And it's like actually speaking the words that the state is writing out for you and spelling out for you. That is the clearest cut version of compelled speech I've seen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and it's invading the most I mean, private and sacred space. Right. You can imagine a therapist and his client. Right. Um, yeah. Not to mention. Yeah. Again, not to mention the the client uh, protections that exist around you know therapists, uh, psychiatric right. therapy, and all of these types of things. Medical therapy. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, well, good luck in that one. That's a huge question. That's going to answer a lot of stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing that that in the news. Uh, yeah. And you saw also not too long ago. Um, I think uh, California is, I don't know if they passed or are attempting to pass a law that says if parents don't uh, affirm their child's uh, gender identity, then they will um, be subject to the state coming in and actually taking their children away from them, which is terrifying <laughs> for all of us to think about. But again, another form of, of coercion from the, from the state. Um, 
yeah, it's not letting up. Uh, and it's, it's a matter of, again, this is why, you know, documents like the constitution exist. They transcend time. They transcend, um, popular ideas, uh, that might, you know, fade out of fashion down the road because it's, it's about the principles and the foundational principles that we all have agreed on in this country as citizens. Um, and it's something that, you know, if they want to change it, then they have to go through the proper processes to change the constitution, right? Which is very different. Right. <laughs> and, you know, they, they also, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a unique blessing in the history of mankind to have part of your government that you can go to for justice against your government. Right. I mean, that's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the judiciary exists to hear these claims that another part of the government, whether it's the legislature or the executive branch, um, you know, at any level, state or federal or local, even that, right. that you can, that you can go to, you know, this, this part of the government for remedy against government. I mean, it is, um, it is one of the, the things that makes the, the constitution, you know, such an ingenious document. Um, and that really since the uh, the 14th Amendment and, and incorporating the Bill of Rights against mm -hmm. the states, that since then, you know, states can provide more protection for your rights than the U.S. Constitution. They just can't provide less. So if they're doing something that is, you know, beneath that 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 floor that the Bill of Rights provided, then, yeah. then you have access to to the judiciary yeah. for vindication. And it's the that separation of, of powers uh, that the founders, again, kind of knowing the fallen nature of man, that when people are in power, they protect that power. They used that and, and turned it on itself. Like we're going to divide it amongst three branches, knowing that each branch is going to zealously guard its own power. And that will keep right. the other two from getting too big. And then, you know, no one branch is ever going to get too powerful. Like that's the whole point. Um, right. So it's, yeah. And that's why it's so important that we keep, you know, constantly reminding um, the, the the general public of this via these cases. It's, um, you know, if, if if you lose that, there's nowhere left to go. I mean, there right, there's no other country civilization. Yeah, we're it. Yeah, um, that that are still you know guarding these things as as closely as we are, um, and so yeah. you know uh, sometimes these cases sort of. Um, serve as like the, the the little Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder, you know, like reminding us all, like, hey, I know you don't like that, you know, what that guy's yeah. saying, but you should be, you should be, you know, protecting his right to say it. Um, right. It's it's and sort of this, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and this is what a lot of people don't realize that in the United States, we do, if you read our constitution and our statement of rights, every, all, it's all about the limitations that we're putting on the government itself, the government structure, saying what rights we have and what limitations the government has to infringe upon those rights. And if you read any other statement of rights for any country, even Western countries, um, all of Europe and Canada, they all write in limitations on the individual. They put limitations on the individuals themselves, not on what the government can do to those individuals. So this is something that, you know, when they say, oh, everyone has the right to free speech, our constitution doesn't say everyone has the right to free speech. It says that Congress shall make no law. And it really specifies that limitation on the government. And I think just going to back what you said, 
with it's not just about the separation of powers. We talk about decentralization of power because you talked about how right. how easily corruptible centralized power is. Uh, we we often think in the United States of the you know the federal system, which is the federal system, which is the separation of powers um, among the states, and that states have their own ability to govern themselves in their own ways from the federal government. But also, you know, the three branches of government is part of that. Uh, decentralization of the power, like you said, trying to put checks and checks on each other in order to force the balancing act that will happen based on them guarding their own powers. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's and, and then the, you know, the ninth and the tenth amendment that right. you know, that build in that federalism. That uh, look, if it's not stated here, then federal government shouldn't be doing it. It should be the states. And that you know, even at the time that was that was adopted and ratified. Um, you know, life in New York was very, very different than life in Virginia. And they right. knew that. And that's okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you like the way New York does things, then you live in New York. If you like the way Virginia does things, then you live in Virginia. Exactly. And it's the same thing. You know, um it, it does it, it establishes this base, this baseline of there's a few things that are going to be the same everywhere. And and everything else is up to the people in the states. Um right. and they, you know, and that combined with, like I said, like having this one branch of government that you can go to um, for help when one of the others is, you know, abusive of these rights, right? And and giving that, especially the federal judiciary, uh, sort of the life tenure and the immunity from the ballot box, mm-hmm. because they were keenly aware, as I said before, of the potential of the tyranny of majority that. 50% plus one can vote if they want to, to try to take the rights away of the other 49%. And so that they empowered the, the, the judicial branch to say, look, if the will of the people conflicts with these, uh, these principles, it's the judiciary's job to say no. Right. But if the people want it bad enough, here's a, here's a process. You can amend the constitution. Right. And it's not easy, nor should it be mm-hmm. um, because we shouldn't be changing these fundamental things, um, right. you know, really nearly. Um, but it all goes, you know, goes back to, um, this is the thing that separates us and it makes us unique in the history of the world. And that's why a case like Laura Smith's is so important. Um, just continually reaffirming that regardless of, of, what you know right. cultural winds have have shifted um from 1789 to today no absolutely absolutely and you know we we talk about you know the importance of you know the constitution and oftentimes people kind of throw it around and say yes the constitution my constitutional rights this violates my constitutional rights these are my you know this is my my right my power whatever um but then they turn around from there and rely very heavily on the federal government to dictate many things in their lives um so it there is a bit of a cognitive dissonance and when it comes to understanding the proper role of the constitutional protections that we have put in place for ourselves and understanding the proper role of essentially what the admin, the, the presidential administration we we're, oftentimes when people refer to the federal government they're referring to the behemoth that is the administration at this point. Um, but, you know, people do rely so heavily on the administrative services that are provided that they forget that they have these rights, that they can actually use this constitution, this bill of rights to defend themselves and that there's a legal system in place to defend yourself. So, you know, what I hate to see is when I'm on college campuses, I, a lot of students don't even, I mean, regardless of whether they've actually read the constitution is one question, but Oftentimes they don't even see 
the opportunity to defend their rights. They don't realize, there's one question of like, are my rights actually being violated? And the second question of, how do I defend them? And so, like you said, having this judicial system um, make these major decisions, I think, catches everyone's attention and makes them realize, you know, wait a second, we have a process here that actually can help in, in many of these situations, and that the Constitution actually supersedes all of these, all of these, uh, you know, Congress and the Supreme Court and and the executive branch as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I say it all the time. You, know, you don't have to be a, a lawyer, you don't have to be a constitutional scholar, but you do need to know enough about your rights to know when they're being violated, right? And and to know what to do about it. You know, and you don't have to to know all the legal strategy. That's why you can find you know folks like us or you know speech first. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but you do need to know enough um, to, to understand what's going on and understand that you don't have to put up with this and that there is a way um, mm-hmm. to combat it um, and, uh, and and to do so in the system that was established for that very purpose. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Lathan, for for coming on to the show once again. Uh, congratulations again on the the big win for ADF. Uh, looking forward to see what you guys take on next. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Lathan, that was well said.